Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Just a couple of weeks ago, the task of solving Bill Little's murder seemed ominous at best. There's really never been a strong lead. No forensic evidence and no reliable eyewitnesses. It was seeming as though there would never be any justice for Bill or for Jamie Snow. But as we've made our shift into the new investigation phase, a few seemingly random puzzle pieces are finally starting to fit together. Last week, we were able to solve the mysterious case of the stolen Monte Carlo. And today, I'm going to revisit a few names that we heard earlier in this season, because we've received yet another anonymous tip. In episode number seven, we covered a few early leads in the original investigation, a series of men who were inexplicably cleared by the Bloomington police detectives. As we take a broader look at the case file and factor in this anonymous tip, I think that it's time that we add a few of those names back into the suspect pool. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to start out today by sharing with all of you my conversation with Jamie following the revelation of the names of the three boys who stole the Monte Carlo on the same night as Bill's murder. Had I told you yet that I got the tip that came in that explained, gave us the names of the people that stole that car? I mean, I, I, I heard it, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if Tammy had told me that or, or, or Ray had told me that. Somebody had told me that, yeah. But that was it. I don't know that anybody had ever followed up on it. Yeah, well, we're working on that now. Um, it was it was pretty crazy because you know what it hadn't really occurred to me before we made the episode this week was that you know that that car theft was a crime that was unsolved for twenty eight years, and this woman called and straight up solved. She and she, I have never said a word about that car theft on the podcast at all, and this woman. She said when when she had been listening to the podcast because she's from Bloomington, 
and she heard when I played the answering machine message from the guy that, that you know, said yeah. her boyfriend's dead. Well, she said when she heard that, she thought that voice was the same voice of the guy that she used to hang out with that stole that car. Yeah. And that's why she called me. And and like I said, I had never mentioned anything about the stolen car. So she, so I. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting. And then and then she, you know, I, I started asking her where was it from. And I, then mind you, at this point, I didn't know anything about the. I knew that you had mentioned to me. Yeah. That the car that there was a car stolen, but that's all I knew. Well, she tells me, "Yep, I was." And she says we were at the Apartment Mart Apartments on Grove Street, just south of the gas station, and. She used to hang out with these three teenage boys that were like 17, 18 years old. And she got there and they showed her they had keys that the neighbor had left their keys in their Monte Carlo. And they were going to go take it for a joyride around the block. Yeah. They went and did that. She stayed in the apartment and she said then they were gone for like a couple hours. They ended up coming back on foot, freaked out. And they were all scratched up because they were running. You know, apparently they saw a cop somewhere, so they ditched the car and took off running and got back uh, to the apartment on foot somewhere around nine o'clock. She thinks eight thirty, nine o'clock. And when they got back, they told her that she needed to go. They were kind of freaking out because their friend Bill Little had just been shot and killed at the Clark Station. Hmm. I, I don't know. I cannot fathom how anyone could have known that information. Even if it was nine thirty or ten o'clock. Yeah, I don't. You know, I, I listen. I, I I don't. I don't know. That's curious to me. Listen, the only thing that ever, like I like I told you before, the thing that just really piqued my my interest and and made me suspicious was that everything that had to do with that with that stolen car just disappeared. Right. I know they processed the car, so I know there has to be, and you know, an evidence inventory sheet of when the car was processed. Right. I mean, look, I, I don't know, Bob. Maybe maybe it didn't have anything to do with the crime. I I don't know. But for me, the, the you know, when someone says I think this or I or I think that, well, I, I need to know. Right. You know. It's easy for someone on the other side of this wall to say, "Well, I I think maybe this didn't have anything, or I think maybe that did." But think think doesn't work, you know. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I've got to know. And I mean, I told Tara, my, my lawyer, this before. I'm like, you know, don't you want to know? If there's a question about something, don't you think we need to know about it, you know? And she's like, "Yeah." <laughs> so, I mean, who knows what condition that car was in when they found it? Yeah. Listen. When Ed Cowell testified in my trial, he his in his transcript, my, my lawyer had asked him, he had said, when you were canvassing the neighborhood, did you find the cash tray, the cash drawer? And he said, no, not at that time. And that has always struck me as, you know, he, he didn't just say no, he said no, not at that time, which has always made me wonder, did they find it somewhere else? Like in that car. Like in the car, and if they found it in the car, they're going to ask the people who own the car, you know, was there any reason this cash drawer would be in your car? I mean, it's just, I don't know. I don't know if it, if that's even even possible, but, I, you know, it's just something that, that we have to know. It looked like there was cloth seats in the car, mm-hmm. so if they found blood in the 
in the car, I would imagine they would they would cut pieces of the seat out. You know, I mean, the, look, in 1993, they were asking the crime lab, saying, "Look, we need to check with the crime lab and see if there's any matches with that car." So, all the emails, all the texts, all the letters, everything that has to do with just that are gone. So I don't know, Bob. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it seems like too much of a coincidence to me that just a number of things, you know, for, for starters, I absolutely believe this woman with the name she gave us, which I've turned over to Tara, because she had all these details, because she, she tells me it was at this apartment mart is where it was stolen. Well, then Ray gives me, after I talked to her, the CAD report, the computer-aided dispatch report, and it says the location that it was stolen from was 1005 East Grove Street, Apartment 1, which is Apartment Mart, exactly where this woman said the car was stolen from on that night. I'm from Bloomington, and I can't, I can't, uh, I, I don't know, I'm trying to picture in my mind where that is, and I can't even, I can't even figure out where it is as, as opposed to where the gas station was. Well, it's almost due south, it, it's like eight-tenths of a mile, if you take Linden straight south, Almost, you know, and Linden kind of makes a jog there and becomes another road. I don't remember the name of the road, but if you take it straight south, like three quarters of a mile, and then you would hang a head to the east, so hang a left if you were going south. Then that apartment mart is right there on Grove Street. It's a straight. It's, it's less than a mile, almost directly south of the Clark Station. Oh, see, I always wondered. Maybe that's maybe that is why they believed that it may have been may have been connected to the crime because i always i always i always wondered if maybe it was stolen from the neighborhood yeah just right around the corner but then where now you had said something about it being found on six points road or something when we talked last week yeah that's what i thought i don't remember i'm looking at the documentation we have unless you have a document that i don't have somewhere that ray doesn't have i don't know i've never seen where they found it all it's in one note it says that it was stolen from the east side of town and recovered on the west side of town. And that's all it says. It doesn't give any more detail than that. Hmm. Maybe that's why I thought Six Points Road. I mean, Six Points Road is on the west side of town. So it may not have been Six Points Road, just somewhere. Yeah, it order. may not have been. It may not have been. And I, and, and I may have got it confused. I mean, there was, there was a Clark station on the corner of Morris and Linden or Morris and uh, Six Points, I think. So I may have got my, I may have got it screwed up. Okay. So you don't, yeah, I guess I was hoping maybe you you had some more information that we didn't have. So we, so we no, still. No, I'm going to go back through my papers now and look. Yeah. Let me know too if you find, because Ray didn't give me, maybe he just didn't find it in the pile he gave me, but he, yeah. you, you had mentioned that memo in 93 or 94. And, yeah. and I don't have that. I, I may have it somewhere in the sea of the thousands of documents. Right, but in the the collection that Ray had put together about the car, there was nothing. The memo wasn't in there. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm going to make sure you get that then. Okay, and it's probably somewhere in the file. It's the same papers, the same memo that included the stuff about the Lunas. You know, the cop that was looking out the Lunas window that night. Okay, so it's all is all included in that that same that same. We're trying to get those uh, memos unredacted mm-hmm. so that we know exactly what it, it you know it's, it, they, they shouldn't be able to redact the name of someone who actually testified at trial i mean they've right it's, it's amazing to me bob i've been in jail for 20 years and the crime happened you know 30 years ago but i've been here 20 years 
And it is just amazing to me that I still have not seen all of the police reports and all of the documentation linked to the, to the crime. It's just, it's, it's just ludicrous, man. Yeah, it is crazy. And I, and I'm trying to figure out, it sounds like Ray is kind of too, like I can't figure out if they just did a really terrible job of documenting and didn't make reports about stuff or if they've withheld a bunch of it because you can't, I've never seen a case like this where you can't connect the dots. You can't, place the the police you know and i work on bad cases right i work on wrongful conviction cases but usually once you get the police report you can at least follow the train of their investigation i can connect this report to this report to this report and in this one you have like all these like here's a suspect for whatever reason yeah and then nothing no follow-up no nothing my opinion from from where i'm sitting today i would guess that it was more of uh They've withheld and, and, and they've hid a lot of stuff. I mean, we already know they have already, you know, withheld all kinds of stuff. And we know that they're still withholding all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I mean, Tara and, and John Lovey's, you know, Lovey and Lovey's law firm, I mean, they, they have filed a civil suit against the state attorney's office to get them to turn over the documents. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how how do you, how could you defend yourself against anything if you don't have all the documentation right it's just amazing to me and they you know and they just keep rubber stamping one person's work after another it's just i I don't get it man well i I think it's crazy that your lawyers are having to fight now i've had fights to get documents that should be available to the public as a you know as a, a private investigator journalist where they don't want to give stuff to me but i've never seen a case where the attorneys for the defendant can't get the documents. That's usually an open, come on in, here they are. Go through them. Like, it's, well, it's most crazy. counties are like that. If I was in Cook County, Cook County would probably, you know, let them. If I was in Cook County, Bob, they would have already they would have already allowed all the forensic testing. You know, mm-hmm. Cook County, that's, that's one thing uh, uh, Tara's always said. You know, when they... When they go in there and they want to do forensic testing and they're, they're going to pay for it, Cook County's like, go ahead. Right. I've had it. But down there where I'm from, no. They always talk about how, oh, we, we support forensic testing if it's appropriate. No, they don't. I, they fight every single person that, that in, in McLean County who has ever tried to, to uh, get DNA testing done on a, 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 on a post-conviction basis. They fought every single one of them. Right, and, and they, they claim because it's not, quote, appropriate. But you know, the only reason to ever have to have that standard in there of what you're going to allow testing for is if you're paying for it. I've, I, it's another first for me. I've never seen a county where the defense is saying, look, we'll pay for the testing. We'll do everything. Just let us do it. You know, even even in Smith County, Texas. What they keep saying in McLean County is that, you know, well, it won't exonerate him, right? But it doesn't have to. I mean, in the state of Illinois, the statute is just that it only has to advance your claims of actual innocence. That's it. Mm-hmm. But they keep saying, well, it, it won't exonerate him. Well, you know, if we run those bullets through IBIS and it's linked to some other shootings and you actually caught it in someone's hand who has a history of committing these sorts of crimes, does it exonerate me? I say yes. but I would too, yeah. Maybe legally, no. But does it advance my claims of actual innocence? Hell yes, it does. Right. So it's just they don't want to know what would come from them bullets. They don't want to find that gun. Mm-hmm. Because I will guarantee you, God Himself could not put that gun in my hand. So they they don't want to take take a chance of uh, 
what would come from doing that testing, and that's why they don't want to test any of it. They've got a conviction, and that's all it's about at this point. They want to preserve the conviction, and, and, and look, you know, I, I don't have any bad or ill feelings towards Don Knapp or anybody in the McLean County State's Attorney's Office anymore. They didn't do this to me. I'm just going to add his name to the list of people who had an opportunity to do the right thing and did Since the McLean County State's Attorney's Office doesn't seem to be interested in solving this case, it looks like if anything is going to happen, we're going to have to be the driving force. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the time being, let's put a pin in the three teenage car thieves and move on to what I've always thought was a promising lead from the very beginning. Back in episode 7, I introduce you to a pair of men known as the Jeffs. Jeff Durbin and Jeff Miller were early suspects in Bill's murder, but were cleared very early on with little explanation. Let me first refresh your memory about the Jeffs. Jeff Miller came into the picture first. In November of 1991, Detectives Crow and Harris went to the McLean County Jail to speak with a Karen Miller. The report states that the visit was in regards to lead number L300A. And surprise, surprise, in the lead sheets turned over by the state, lead 300A is a fully redacted page. And I mean fully redacted. The entire page is blacked out. So we don't actually know what the tip was that led Crow and Harris to go visit Mrs. Miller in jail. But when they did, this is what she had to say. Quote, Miller stated that her husband, Jeff Miller, told her this past summer that he killed that kid at the Clark station. He told Karen that he shot him with a gun and Jeff Durbin was with him in the getaway car. End quote. So here we have a woman straight up admitting to Detective Crow that her husband is the one who killed Bill Little. To put that into a bit of context, Jeff Miller at the time was in jail for three other armed robberies, all in the Bloomington Normal area and all in 1991. He had robbed another Clark station on Morris Street, a mobile gas station, and an Econo Lodge hotel. So we have a guy with a known history of armed robberies of gas stations in Bloomington at the time of Bill's murder whose wife informed the police that he had told her that he is the one who shot and killed Bill with a guy named Jeff Durbin as his getaway driver. But as promising as this lead sounds, Jeff Miller was cleared by Crow. The only explanation that we have as to why comes in the end of the police report. Crow wrote, quote, Jeff Miller is 5'6 and only weighs 125 pounds. 
He has dark brown curly hair and no scar on his chin. End quote. This is the problem and the disconnect that we have with the early investigation compared to the cold case investigation nine years later. It appears that Crow was convinced that Gutierrez's witness statement was not only accurate, but also relevant to the murder. Anyone who didn't fit the description was cleared. But once Katz took over the investigation, he had his sights set on Jamie Snow, so he had to disregard the witness statements. If only Crow had looked past the physical descriptions, maybe, just maybe, Bill Little's killer would have been caught. The Jeffs come back into the picture about a year and a half later, on June 15, 1993, when someone called Crime Stoppers with a tip. The tip reads, quote, Informant stated that Jeff Durbin approached him after the murder and wanted Informant to do something for Durbin. Informant refused. Durbin stated to Informant that Durbin was involved in the little murder with one other suspect. End quote. So let's focus in on Durbin for a minute. His name comes up in 1991 when Jeff Miller's wife tells Detective Crow that her husband shot and killed Bill and that Jeff Durbin was his getaway driver. Then in 1993, an anonymous tipster calls Crime Stoppers to report that shortly after the murder, Jeff Durbin told him that he was involved in the Bill Little murder along with another person. This tip should have corroborated the statements given by Miller's wife but apparently, Crow was still too hung up on Gutierrez's description, because we have no police reports where the tip about Durbin was ever even followed up on. And here is where things get really interesting. This Crime Stoppers tip and the statement by Jeff Miller's wife were not the only tips received by the Bloomington PD about Jeff Durbin. A short time ago, I received an anonymous tip from a frustrated listener. The man was frustrated because he had tried to provide this tip to the original investigators back in 1991, and they blew him off. He said that he went into the police station and asked to speak with the detective in charge of the Bill Little murder and told the detective everything he knew. But according to our tipster, the detective listened to him, never wrote a single note, and dismissed him and there is no police report in our files that mention this tip at all. This tip not only brings Jeff Durbin back into the forefront of our investigation, but it also resurrects another name that we've heard, Wiley Holt. Wiley was the cab driver that spent $23.10 on gas and oil at 7.53 p.m., just 13 minutes before the first no-sale on the register tape. But with this tip comes some new information. A connection between Wiley Holt and Jeff Durbin. A man with personal knowledge of the situation called in to tell me what he told investigators in May of 1991. Jeff Durbin worked for his dad, Frank Durbin, at the time of the murder doing construction. People who worked with Jeff have stated that Jeff was always bragging to everyone on the crew that he was a, quote, wheelman in a lot of armed robberies. He couldn't actually do the robberies himself without a mask because he has tattoos on his face. 
But according to our tipster, Jeff would tell anyone who would listen that he could be their getaway driver if they wanted to rob someone. And of course, all of that makes sense considering the fact that shortly after this, Durbin was arrested for driving the getaway car in a series of armed robberies committed by Jeff Miller. Based on this tip, Jeff Durbin used two different vehicles while operating as the wheelman in these robberies. One was a brown Granada that he and his girlfriend Abby owned. He would tell the construction workers that he used this vehicle mostly to scout because it blended in. And to answer your question, yes, the Ford Granada did come in both two-door and four-door models. This, of course, is interesting because we have multiple reports of a four-door brown car around the scene and speeding away from the scene. But things get even more interesting when we hear about Durbin's other getaway vehicle, a taxi cab owned by, you guessed it, Wiley Holt. According to our tipster, Jeff's father, Frank, a convicted felon himself, was friends with Wiley. Supposedly, they actually started Frank's construction business together. Because of their friendship, Wiley hired Jeff to drive one of his cabs. Jeff Durbin, he was known to be a braggart, always going on and on about his criminal endeavors. He evidently used to brag to the other construction workers that he would usually use the taxi cab as the actual getaway car because he could, quote, cook the books and alter his logs to make it look like he was on the other side of town during the robberies that he was involved with. And this all seems to add up considering the fact that in November of 1991, Durbin pled guilty to using his taxi cab as a getaway car in all three of the armed robberies that Jeff Miller was charged with. The Clark Station, the Mobile Station, and the Econo Lodge. And according to our tip, right after Bill's murder, Jeff's father was furious with him and he fired him from the construction job and cut off all contact with him. Another interesting point in the tip was that supposedly, shortly after the murder, police did ask Durbin to supply them with his cab logs. And conveniently, his house burned to the ground, supposedly with all of his paperwork inside. Now, to be completely honest, I have not been able to confirm or deny this part of the allegation. But if it's true, that would be another big red flag, both for Durbin and the Bloomington PD. Because we not only have no police reports regarding the tip about Durbin, which makes sense considering that the man said that the investigator didn't even take notes during their conversation, but we also don't have any reports indicating that police ever made contact with Durbin during the Bill Little homicide. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So let me sum this up for you, and then we're going to circle back around to Wiley Holt. Our tipster claims that Jeff Durbin used to brag all the time about working as a getaway driver for armed robberies in Bloomington in 1991. He would use a brown Ford Granada and a taxi cab to commit the crimes. We have multiple witnesses stating that there was a four-door brown car in the vicinity of the Clark Station on the night of the murder. In 1993, someone called into Crime Stoppers to report that Jeff Durbin had confessed to them that he was involved in Bill's murder with another man. In 1991, Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin were charged and convicted for three armed robberies wherein Durbin served as the getaway driver, using a taxi cab. And in November of 91, Jeff Miller's wife told investigators that her husband had admitted to her that he is the one who shot Bill Little and that Jeff Durbin was his getaway driver. And then we have Wiley Holt and his taxi cab. Wiley, by his own admission and confirmed on the register tape, was at the Clark Station just minutes before Bill was killed. On our first pass, Wiley seemed pretty innocuous. But given the fact that we now know that Jeff Durbin has a direct connection to Holt, a second look at his 1991 statement begins to bring the pieces of our puzzle a little bit closer together. Let's review Wiley Holt's interactions with the police then I'll explain why he could be the key to solving Bill's murder. This is the handwritten report from the night of Bill's murder, written by Officer Sanders. Quote, At about 1.10 a.m., Wiley Holt came to the police station and related the following events to me concerning the armed robbery and homicide at the Clark Station on Linden and Empire. Wiley says he went to the Clark Station at about 8.15 p.m. and pumped gas from the east side of the easternmost pump island. He said that he observed a brown four-door, possibly a Buick, that was parked on the west side of the same pump island. After he had already gone inside and spoke with the attendant and ate a candy bar, an unoccupied smaller brown car was parked near the building. Mr. Holt says that the brown car that was parked at the same pump island as his car was occupied by a bearded black male driver and another suspect, unknown sex or race. Mr. Holt said that he noticed the brown car with the two occupants bore white plates with dark blue letters and or numerals. He says he then went downtown and heard of the robbery and shooting shortly thereafter. End quote. Now, I want to pause right there for a second because this is our first red flag. I missed it, and so did everyone else for the last 28 years. When I first read Wiley's statement a few months ago, he just seemed like a concerned citizen trying to help the police. But what we failed to notice was the fact that he said he went straight downtown and, quote, shortly thereafter, he heard about the shooting. Even if he was at the Clark Station at 8.15, like he said, depending on exactly what shortly thereafter means, it doesn't really make sense that he would find out about the shooting that soon. And when we consider the fact that he was actually at the station, according to the register tape, at 7.53 p.m., 27 minutes before the shooting, I really have a problem with him learning about the murder, quote, shortly thereafter. The report ends with this. 
Wiley Holt says that his son, John Holt, a cab driver, informed him that Dwayne Dixon told John Holt that he had heard a shot or shots and saw a vehicle leave the scene at a high rate of speed. Now again, on our first pass, this didn't throw up any red flags, but think about this for a minute. Either Wiley and John and Dwayne Dixon are telling the truth, which would mean we have to throw out all of the other witness statements, both Martinez and Luna saw a man leaving on foot, and Pilo was on the scene supposedly when the shots were fired, and he didn't see any car peeling out of the parking lot. Personally, I believe Martinez and Luna both did witness the killer leaving the station, even though later they both changed their stories to help convict Jamie. Nonetheless, I already have a problem with this Dwayne Dixon supposedly seeing a vehicle leave the station at a high rate of speed right after the shooting. And that's not to mention the fact that supposedly he heard the shots. Well, where was he? Was he outside? Was he in a vehicle? No one reported seeing a cab at the station that night. And remember, Bill was shot with a 22 inside of a closed building on a busy street. Pilo didn't even hear the shots from across the street, and I wouldn't expect him to. So how would this Dwayne Dixon have heard the shots? when according to all of our witnesses, he was nowhere near the scene. Well, apparently, the Bloomington PD didn't believe this story either, because we have no record of them ever even interviewing Mr. Dixon, which in and of itself is odd, considering that he supposedly witnessed the killer fleeing the scene that night. But what I'm left with is the simple fact that either Dwayne Dixon is lying, or John Holt is lying, or Wiley Holt is lying. There's just no way that this guy heard the shots and saw a car speeding away from the parking lot. It's just not possible. Which leaves us with a big fat question. Why are they lying? In another file, we have an actual transcript of a police interview with Wiley Holt on April 1st, the morning after the murder. The beginning of the transcript basically tells the same story as you just heard regarding seeing the brown car at the Clark station. But here's the part that really got my attention. The officer asked, quote, After you left the station, how long was it before you heard about the robbery? Wiley responds, I had time to come to the bus station and I walked in and got me an orange soda and saw a squad car come by the Luca Grill and my boy came by and told me about it. End quote. And then at the end of the statement, Wiley makes a correction and says that his son John called him on the radio to tell him about the shooting, and he didn't tell him in person. Now, let's put all of this together. The bus station and the Luca Grill are 1.2 miles away from the Clark Station, just a four-minute drive according to Google Maps. Wiley Holt paid for his gas and oil and maybe even a candy bar at 7.53 p.m., he says that he talked to Bill and ate his candy bar. So let's say he left the station somewhere between 8 and 8.05, if he really took his time. That's one minute before the first no-sale. He then makes a four-minute drive to the bus station to pick up a fare. He goes inside and buys an orange soda. So now we're talking about him being there at, on the long side, around 8.10. He says that, quote, I had time to come to the bus station, and I walked in and got me an orange soda and saw a squad car come by the Luca Grill, and my boy came by, later changed to called him on the radio, 
and told me about it. End quote. Based on his own description, we're talking about minutes after his arrival that he heard about the shooting. The silent alarm was pressed at 8.16 p.m., and all of the evidence indicates that Bill was shot at about 8.21 p.m. If Wiley was at the bus station for, say, let's be conservative, 15 minutes before he heard about the shooting, that would mean that he knew someone was shot at the Clark station by 8.25 p.m. Before Williams and Pilo even knew for sure that that's what had happened. Now let's jump back to the best, most credible lead that we have. Jeff Williams' wife told police that Jeff killed Bill Little and that Jeff Durbin was his getaway driver. Later, we get a tip that Jeff Durbin told someone that he was involved in the murder with another man. We now know that Jeff Durbin worked for Wiley Holt driving a cab and that he used that cab as a getaway car in several armed robberies. We also know that Jeff liked to brag to the people he worked with about being a getaway driver. And somehow, a group of Wiley Holtz cab drivers knew about the shooting before the responding officers knew that Bill had been shot. At that point, they only knew that the silent alarm had been pressed and that Bill was down on the floor. And that's not all. Let's now go back to the original witness descriptions. Crow was focused in on Gutierrez's description of the tall, lanky guy with the scar on his chin. That's why he ruled out Jeff Miller. As he noted in his report, quote, Jeff Miller is only about 5'6 and 125 pounds. But we now know that we can probably throw Gutierrez's statement out. The register tape, in my opinion, along with the changing stories, pretty much proves that Gutierrez saw the man at the station at 7 p.m., over an hour before the murder, and likely not connected at all. So then we're left with Danny Martinez as our most reliable witness. And how did he describe the man that he saw? I'll read to you directly from his original statement. Quote, He was a white male about in his 20s, and he was about my height, which is 5'8", and he was thin. Danny Martinez saw the man that killed Bill Little from about 50 feet away and described him as about his height and thin, which sounds an awful lot like 5'6", 125-pound Jeff Miller. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. 
To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. And we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.